listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And honestly, Caroline, I'm surprised that we have not done this episode on the difference between gender and sex sooner. Yeah. Because we talk about those two things all the time. We do. And and we got into a lot of the topics um, that are related to this in our Transgender 101 episode. You know, so we do encourage you to go back and give that a listen if you haven't. And we're also going to touch on an even farther back episode on uh, people who are intersex. And if you want to look for that episode, it is called Why Is It So Easy to Fail a Gender Test? Um, and, and this was another request that we got from Facebook when we put out a call for people's dream topics. And this got a number of upvotes, I think, because... It's one of those basic things that we hear a lot about in terms of gender difference, sex difference, but no one ever really says, well, what are we talking about exactly? And you and I use uh, often descriptors of male and female sometimes to people's annoyance because it sounds so clinical. Um, so why use male and female versus men and women? Also, yes, trans issues. Let's sort it all out, Caroline. Yeah. Well, to start sorting it out, it's hard to sort it out um, because all of this gender stuff really does exist on a spectrum, as many sociologists, psychologists have pointed out. Yeah. And even academic conversations about gender and sex exist on a spectrum spanning biological determinism, this idea that if you are born with two X chromosomes, you are female and thus life is going to probably be like X, Y, Z versus on the other end, social constructionism, where we have how the environment shapes a lot of who we are. In other words, that's a fancy way of saying we're going to be talking a lot about nature versus nurture. Right, because you can be born biologically male or female, um, but the way that you're raised, the way that, um, you know, those, those stereotypes that you fit into can be sort of, you know, in the gray area. Things can be blurred along gender lines. But sex is more of a biological determinant. And then we also have the factor of talking about bodies, yes, but also talking about behavior. Mm-hmm. And behavior is such a complicating factor in a lot of ways because an evolutionary psychologist would probably tell you that behavior is never going to be either just nature or or nurture. It's a very complex interweaving of both. But we're going to try to break it down as easily as we can to clarify at least the basics of gender versus sex. And then at the very end, we're going to touch on how sexual orientation ties into all of this. Right. And you might think that the words gender and sex were always around, that those distinctions have always existed, but that's not so. It wasn't until about the 1950s and 60s that the distinctions between sex and gender first emerged in the English language through psychiatrists who were working with intersex and transsexual patients. And it is also, as would seem obvious, around this time that the term transsexual itself was popularized. So that means that... The reasons why we have those terms is because of those early recognitions 
of the spectrum factors that we're talking about. Um, so let's talk about sex. What do we mean when we're talking about sex, not in the sense of sexy times sex? <laughs> sex refers to the biological and physiological characteristics that define men and women. This includes our internal and external sex organs, chromosomes, hormones, etc. The stuff that usually happens when an egg is fertilized. Right. And so the words male and female would describe sex categories and sex characteristics include things like menstruation, testicle development and men tending to have more upper body strength, for instance. So what about gender? All right. If we want to get textbook about gender, we're talking more about socially constructed roles, behaviors, activities and attributes that a given society considers appropriate for men and women. So for that reason, it's masculine and feminine that are used to describe gender categories. Right. Like you can still I'm biologically female. I'm a straight female or woman. Uh, I am female, um, but you could describe certain behaviors or clothes that I wear or things that I say as more stereotypically masculine. So gender descriptions don't necessarily match up to sex. Exactly. And so uh, stereotypical gender characteristics would include things like women doing more child care and housework, men being the breadwinners, men wearing pants, women wearing skirts, etc., But once you move even a centimeter beyond these textbook definitions, we get into spectrum land where actually things are not always so neatly divided between man, woman, male, female. So indeed, what we're getting at here is that sex itself, the biological characteristic, isn't necessarily a male female binary. It's not just one or the other. About one in 2,000 people in the U.S. are actually born intersex, and that is when sex chromosomes are different from the usual XX or XY, and they may develop ambiguous genitalia. Yeah, so if you hear about people who have Turner syndrome, for instance, that is an XO combination, and then there's Kinefelter syndrome, which is people who have XXY, and those chromosomal differences can result in people who who have intersex conditions um, being considered sexually ambiguous in different ways, such as having an enlarged clitoris or having a very small penis, um, or they may have sex organs that appear to be somewhat male and female at the same time. Yeah, one of the articles we read was talking to a a researcher whose daughter actually was intersex. She was, uh, if you looked at her, for instance, if you're superficially, she appears to be a woman, female. But she actually, they discovered later in life that she had undescended testes in a hernial sac. So she had, you know, I mean, so that's just an, an example of, you know, looking female people, you're raised female, you are, you know, considered to be female, but you might have both characteristics. And one name that we need to mention in talking about research that's gone into intersex identity is John Money, who is a New Zealand born psychologist and sexologist. And he was one of the, the main pioneers in theories of intersex identity during his career, actually in the United States at Johns Hopkins University. And within that, he invented the terms gender identity and gender role. But we should also say, though, that Money 
Giuliani's career was also overshadowed by a really controversial decision that he made in the sex reassignment of David Reimer, who later committed suicide. Right. And one thing that was um, that's important to note, you know, doing all this research, looking into the issues of sex and gender, gender and particularly intersex uh, conditions, it's way more common than one would think. And a lot of the time you hear about these tragic stories of uh, a baby is born with, you know, it looks like maybe both or they can't tell. It's kind of ambiguous. And so they will say, OK, well, let's just you know, do a surgery, raise this child as female, and then the child grows up and, well, she's more male, actually. And so, you know, tragic stories like that. And so we have Germany, actually, who is in the news. And in November 2013, Germany will actually become the first European Union nation to legally recognize a third gender in the cases of babies born with ambiguous genitalia. And countries Australia and Nepal already offer that option. Yeah, I mean, because in the case of those babies, there's the clinical thinking commonly that the best thing is to assign that baby either a male or female identity Mm -hmm. so that it can then grow into that. But if surgery is involved in that, you know, as you've talked about, that can be so damaging Right. And one of the articles we were looking at on this, one of the commenters, I know you're never supposed to read the comments, but one of the commenters was saying, like, this is terrible. You shouldn't allow parents to pick a third gender because kids need stability. And my thought on that is like, well, it's an infant, first of all, so it doesn't really know what stability is yet. Um, It might not be aware of its surroundings. And so I think that must be scary, though, as a parent. That's what the issue is, because it's not so much that you won't love your child regardless. It's more of like issues of like, what do I what do I name my child? How you know, how how do I raise a child who I'm not sure biologically whether he or she is male or female? Well, and I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why. It's important for us to learn more mm-hmm. about intersex. I mean, because thinking about that one in 2000, that's a lot more common than we, people probably realize. Um, and again, we did devote uh, an entire episode to this. Why is it so easy to fail a gender test? If you want to dig that up in the stuff I'm never told you, <laughs> ever expanding library. Um, and if you do want more information in the meantime, you can check out the website of the Intersex Society of North America. Um, but we've talked a lot about, you know, we're talking about gender identity mm-hmm. of what to assign uh, a baby, that kind of quandary that parents might encounter. So let's talk about then how the spectrum of sex then so quickly intersects with the spectrum of gender. Right, because there are a lot of breakdowns as far as gender goes. We have gender roles, which that's the way that people act. It's what they do and they say. It's how they express being a girl or a boy or a man or a woman. And a lot of times these characteristics are shaped by society, but they do tend to vary from culture to culture. Sure, because when you think about it, what what's masculine and feminine 
is probably going to change, you know, if you go to different spots around the globe. Um, and along with that, the gender stereotypes might change. Those widely accepted judgments or biases regarding a person or group. And I, I really liked this uh, definition over, at, I believe it was from Planned Parenthood, that said that stereotypes about gender can cause unequal and unfair treatment because of a person's gender, and this is called sexism. Right, so when we go ahead and we make assumptions about people based on their perceived gender and how they should be treated and how we think they should act. Well, so then we have gender typing, and this is involves childhood. This is the process by which children acquire their values, motives, and behaviors which are viewed as appropriate for males or females within a given culture. And it should be noted that kids often pick quote-unquote, gender-appropriate toys by age three. You know, we've talked in other episodes on other topics about how common it is for children to already be assuming things about people and about their world and their environment according to those stark gender divisions. Maybe it's the way they're raised. But um, also, as early as 15 to 36 months, children develop gender-typed patterns of behavior and preferences, but girls actually tend to conform less strictly. But that, I think, goes back to what we've talked about before, where, you know, it's okay for girls to do boy things, but not okay for boys to do girl things. Yeah, in in a bit of an ironic twist, uh, in a lot of ways, the feminine gender role these days, at least, is a lot more fluid and forgiving in a way than Mm -hmm. that for boys and men. Yeah, which would be a lot to do with the nurture aspect of this discussion. Yeah. And so from the gender typing, those early childhood developments, we grow into our own gender identity and gender identity is kind of a combination of all of those gender terms that we're talking about because it relates to how we feel about and express our gender and gender roles. We express this in terms of clothing, behavior and personal appearance. And again, it's a feeling that we have as early as age two or three. Although the expressive parts of it in terms of, you know, the outward trappings of gender with clothing, Mm -hmm. piercings, tattoos, etc., probably emerge more, I would think, in adolescence and later life. Right. And it is when these gender identities conflict with our biological sex that many people identify as transgender. And so trans, as we did talk about in our Trans 101 episode is an umbrella term that actually represents a diversity of gender identities, expressions, and sexual orientations. And this includes, too, people who identify as genderqueer, which is um, a term that means identifying with multiple genders or no genders, and uh, with people who express themselves however they wish in a mix of masculine, feminine, and or androgynous ways. Right. And we mentioned the term transsexual earlier, how that emerged at the same time in the 50s and 60s, that the distinction between sex and gender did. And so transsexual is under this trans umbrella, but it's not typically a preferred term these days. Uh, transgender is the umbrella term. Transsexual would not be an umbrella term. Yeah. And Glad notes that many transgender people prefer the term transgender to transsexual. So just a... Just a tip out there for language use. And, you know, in terms of talking about the fluidity of gender identity and gender roles, people who identify as transgender may choose to transition so that their outside matches the way that they feel and they identify inside. Yeah, and transitioning could include 
anything from changing your name to wearing different clothes to getting gender reassignment surgery um, or really whatever that per- person feels is appropriate in order to better match up that gender identity with their bodies, their biological makeup. Right. And as we've touched on in the trans uh, podcast, we do see trans women in many other cultures who go by different names. And that does include the third gender, like we talked about. But Mexico, Pakistan, Polynesia, all of these countries and regions do have very distinct uh, other gender identities. Yeah. And in June 2013, Speaking of gender identities, uh, Australian Nori May Welby became the first person in the world recognized as genderless following a legal appeal. And we are seeing more and more, um, like you talked about in Germany and Australia and Nepal already have this option of uh, having more than just the male or female box to check, mm-hmm. which is great because it is, as we're learning more about trans visibility, for instance, um, it, it really is so much more common than we might think for the, the the binary to really not fit a lot of people. And that's why we talk a lot about the spectrum, because a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, it does exist on a spectrum. I mean, even talking about I think for um, some people, the, the idea of biological sex being more on a spectrum might be a little more difficult to conceptualize than something like gender, mm-hmm. which is so much more talking about culture and nurture and society. Um, but even for that, I mean, Judith Butler, for instance, and some other people have said that, you know, maybe in a way, like the two are not all that different in terms of being constructs. I mean, obviously, there's biology that goes into, you know, sperm fertilizing eggs and chromosomes and all of that. But what happens when those biological mechanisms take place isn't always just a, oh, XX or XY, and there you go. Right. And I, I think I think that's one of the great aspects of having these movements, these basically civil rights movements, you know, movements for visibility and acceptance, not only among the gay community, but among the trans community, because you're getting more people talking about it and people are thinking, and especially, you know, not to sound like an old fogey, but thanks to the Internet. <laughs> I love the Internet. You know, more people are able to connect to people like them and realize that they are not alone. And so, you know, you might have grown up and felt I'm the only one who feels like this. This is I am so weird. Or as a parent, you might think, oh, my God, no one has ever been through what I'm going through. But now with these movements progressing and more people talking about it and these communities gaining more acceptance, I, I think that it's a hugely positive step socially, mentally, emotionally for everyone involved, but also just to get maybe more research out there, you yeah. know, to, to broaden our understanding of what sex and gender mean. Yeah. And I think we are seeing that in academia. I know that there have been a lot of journals that have popped up in uh, more recent years focusing on the LGBTQ community and how specific like health issues affect them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always more is needed. And now we've reached the point of talking about, well, sexual orientation. Okay. What about that? Even though I feel like sexual orientation often gets the most press, mm-hmm. 
out of all of the facets of this conversation, in a way, sexual orientation to me is the simplest of all because it's just, oh, well, it's, it's who you're attracted to. Yeah, it does kind of just boil down to, yeah, exactly, who you're attracted to. You know, are you gay, straight, bisexual? We do have issues that we haven't touched on yet of uh, being pansexual, attracted to just about everybody. Yeah, I mean, all basically with uh, pansexuality, gender identity is sort of a, a moot point because right. it's almost like you don't see gender identity. And then there is the issue of being just questioning. So kind of like sexual orientation agnostic. Yeah. And then finally, sort of at the flip side of all of this, there's asexuality. Talk about a group of people who have really found a lot of community um, on the Internet. It's uh, with asexuality. The, there's been a lot more visibility that's come out um, just from people finding each other online. And these are people who don't experience sexual attraction at all. And even within asexuality, there is uh, a spectrum there of, the kinds of relationships that they do seek out. And again, we have done an episode a while back on asexuality. And I believe I wrote an article for HowStuffWorks.com called How Asexuality Works, if you'd like to learn more about that. And that's sort of it, in a way, with sexual orientation. It seems so oversimplified now after we're talking about all the nuances of sex and gender and then coming down to, well... And then you're attracted to people. And then sometimes you, you know, want to have sex with certain people. And then sometimes you really fall in love. And, and, and then sometimes you have both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this was definitely interesting to look at because, or to dive deeper into anyway. I mean, we've talked about all sorts of aspects of sex and gender on the podcast before. But really looking at how biology plays into things, but also how you're raised, you know, like the roles that you think you should be in versus the roles that you feel like you are in. And also those innate feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about gender identity in kids and how from those very early ages, you have kids who with almost no prompting whatsoever, just say, you know what, I'm not a boy or I'm not a girl. And it's almost inborn in them. Yeah. So there are all these different factors. And I hope that this has been a helpful primer for listeners. And it's also a, a good refresher for us because we're always talking about gender differences and sex differences. And, you know, it's a good way to make sure that we're keeping all of those kinds of things straight as well. Straight. <laughs> kind of a pun there. Yeah, so we would love to hear from you listeners, um, whether you have life experiences you want to share with us, stories you want to share, um, or just want to, you know, give your fellow listeners maybe resources where they can learn more. It would be great to hear from you. Yeah, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters and you can also hit us up on Facebook or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to some letters. All righty. So I have a letter here from Laura who says that she listens while working. She corrects and implements spatial analysis of aerial imagery. Naturally. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Laura says, your recent podcast on forgetfulness was wonderful. I regularly find myself frustrated with my husband because he forgets things like grocery items or dinner dates with friends. Your info helped me realize because I'm the food preparer and party planner in the relationship 
Those details are very important to me. My partner, however, is an avid cyclist and has a spectacular memory resolution when it comes to all things bikes, parts, and things that I have very little memory for. I feel detail memory is more related to the things that are important to the individual. I think she has a point. I, well, you know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is, even though we often joke about selective memory, there is a certain truth to that. Sure, if, if you have emotions or, you know, life preferences tied up in something. Then you'll remember it better. So I have a letter here from a listener who I think would prefer to remain anonymous. And it's in response to our episode on infertility and age. I think that you have so far underplayed the role of the male partner in infertility because many women assume that fertility is a woman's issue and that the husband or father will have healthy sperm well into old age. They assume the burden of infertility treatments sometimes to no avail because they are not looking at the whole problem. About 35% of infertility in couples have to do with male factors. Male infertility can mean inadequate sperm counts, inadequate number of healthy sperm, sluggish and malformed sperm, etc. Male factors can be minor or severe and sometimes both male and female factors can contribute to a couple's infertility. I went through about eight months of infertility treatments before my partner finally agreed to do a semen analysis. He was very resistant to testing his sperm on the assumption that he was a healthy male with what appeared to be a perfectly normal and copious ejaculate. It turned out that his fertility issues were not just as serious as mine, and with the combination of both male and female factors, it was virtually impossible for us to get pregnant the good old-fashioned way. Happily, with very good medical treatment, we were able to overcome these and are now the proud parents of a baby girl. Nevertheless, the infertility journey was long and hard fought. It took about four years, all told. We would have saved a lot of time and grief if we had accepted the role of male factors in infertility from the get-go. So if you have thoughts to send our way, you can email us. MomStuffDiscovery.com is our address. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. We're also on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, you can check out our videos as well. YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou is where you can go. And don't forget to subscribe. Works.com.